<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 293. It's titled, Making Decisions, Uncertainty Versus Risk. We have been sheltered in place here in Phoenix for over two weeks now. There are five of us. We've spent a lot of time walking the dog, taking hikes, doing our best to stay at least six feet away from strangers. I've only gone to the store once, to the grocery store, about 10 days ago. Most of our food is now delivered. Spending a lot of time reading, two kids spending a lot of time taking online classes for college. We make dinner together and occasionally watch a movie. Life, admittedly, is much easier for me than for many of you who have young children at home and you're trying to, at the same time, homeschool them or help them with school and pursue your professional activities. I liked this description by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker. She wrote, The social fabric is being torn in unprecedented ways, owing to school closings, a widespread shift to working from home, social distancing, sheltering in place. Whereas we used to share dozens of experiences a day with friends, acquaintances, and strangers, from riding the subway to working in an office, standing in line at lunch, going to a concert, eating at a restaurant, chatting to an Uber driver, many of us have been reduced to sharing only isolation and the fear of chance encounters, if either of those can be said to be shared. In early February, episode 26 of the podcast, we looked at the coronavirus and the financial impact of pandemics. At the time, I said we didn't know how severe this would be from a health standpoint, because epidemiologists and other health officials were still trying to determine how deadly the virus was, how contagious, how it spreads, and what treatment mechanisms work the best. In some regards, they're still uncertain. I was hopeful on the financial and economic fronts that the permanent impact would be minimal and the recovery quick. I mentioned the Federal Reserve had never cut interest rates in response to a pandemic. At the time, there were 27,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19, the vast majority in China. Now there are over 800,000 cases, according to data from John Hopkins University, most outside of China. There have been over 38,000 deaths. In the month of March alone, U.S. cases have gone from 98, just two digits, 98, to 164,000. Germany, from 159 confirmed cases to 67,000. Italy, from 2,000 to 102,000. The number of cases and deaths have far exceeded the SARS virus in 2003, MERS in 2012, Ebola in 2014, and the Zika virus in 2015. The number of cases is much less than the H1N1 influenza virus 
from 2009, commonly known as the swine flu, that virus, there were 61 million cases in the U.S. alone, 12,000 deaths. The mortality rate was only 0.02%, whereas the mortality rate globally for confirmed cases of COVID-19 is 4.8%. In the U.S., it's about 1.9%. Now, there's still a lot of uncertainty what the final mortality percentage will be. In China, COVID-19 confirmed cases went from 80,000 to 82,000 in March. The number of cases is probably underreported. But if there was a large-scale outbreak in China, a second wave, the world would know. It would show up in the real-time data you see in China in terms of the percent of energy usage, traffic, use of public transportation, all of which are down significantly, but have been improving, which suggests that hopefully the coronavirus is contained in that country. In the U.S., the Trump administration has extended social distancing guidelines until the end of April. There's controversy regarding are there enough tests? Are there enough ventilators? Mask? Whether we should be wearing masks or not? This is our new reality. In the midst of this new reality, there are a couple of anecdotes that keep coming to mind. The first was from Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Black Swan. He lived in Lebanon during the Civil War. He wrote, I was constantly told by adults that the war, which ended up lasting close to 17 years, was going to end in only a matter of days. They seemed quite confident in their forecast of duration as can be evidenced by the number of people who sat waiting in hotel rooms and other temporary quarters in Cyprus, Greece, France, and elsewhere for the war to finish. 17 years, and yet they thought it would last just a few days. He gave the example of Cuban refugees. Many had their suitcases still packed, ready to return from Miami back to Cuba in the 1960s, thinking it would only be a few days. Iranian refugees in Paris and London who fled the Islamic Republic back in 1978 thought just a few weeks, perhaps, and then they could return. Jonathan Safran Foer, in his book, We Are the Weather, wrote, My grandmother fled her Polish village to save her life. She left behind four grandparents, her mother, two siblings, cousins, and friends. She was 20 years old, and knew only what everyone else knew. The Nazis were pushing east into Soviet-occupied Poland and were only days away. Asked why she left, she would say, I felt I had to do something. He mentioned how his grandmother's younger sister, who was later shot, had followed his grandmother outside the house, took off her only pair of shoes and handed it to her sister and said, you're lucky to be leaving. But was it luck? Fora writes, those who stayed weren't any less brave, intelligent, resourceful, or afraid of dying. They just didn't believe what was coming would be so different from what had already come many times. Belief can't be willed into being, and you can't force someone to believe. 
not even with better and louder or more virtuous arguments, not even with irrefutable evidence. They thought life would continue as it was. We do the same thing. I do the same thing with this pandemic. Just think it'll be hopefully just a few more weeks and things will quickly get back to normal. But we do not know. What I do know is that life will be altered permanently, our view of life, after what we have experienced over the past few weeks. Old Peters and Murray Gelman wrote a paper on risk-taking and pointed out, quote, if we lose our house, we cannot bet the house again. We cannot go back in time after the gamble, and our future will be affected by the decisions we make today. Life will not go back the way it was. And that's okay. But what we don't know is exactly how it will be and how long our present circumstances will stay in the social isolation that we're doing now and the permanent impacts of that. A number of times on the show, we've discussed the difference between risk and uncertainty. And it's really important to make that distinction given what is going on with the pandemic. Risk is characterized by events that can be defined, outcomes that can be defined, where we can assign probabilities and we can buy insurance to protect against that event. Insurers know how frequently a house will burn down. You can get insurance. You can define the parameters and set probabilities. Uncertainty is we don't know what the outcomes are. We don't even know what the possibilities are. We cannot assign probabilities. We can't get insurance for it. All we can do is build a buffer to protect ourselves and try to reduce our exposure to potential catastrophic outcomes. Ben Hunt writes the Epsilon Theory newsletter. In his most recent essay titled Once in a Lifetime, he discussed the difference between risk and uncertainty and wrote, when people talk about the trade-off between the national economic impact of shutting down the country and the national health impact of shutting down the country, they are using the language and the calculator of risk. It's not that people are wrong to say there's a trade-off. There is a trade-off. What they're wrong is to think that there is some equilibrium here, some sort of balancing point in our policy so that we can maximize our national economic expected utility given our national health expected utility and vice versa. In other words, there's a way to optimize it. In the face of uncertainty, we cope as humans. We don't optimize as former Bank of England chair Mervyn King says. Hunt continues, where they're wrong is to think in terms of risk and expected utility in the first place. And uncertainty is an event where either we can't know the probabilities at all, or as in the case of public policy in the face of a pandemic, we're only going to play the game once. One shot. And we cannot go back in time and have a do-over. This year, according to the Insurance Information Institute, the probability of you or me 
dying in an automobile accident is 1 in 45,000. And the odds over a lifetime is 1 in 572. My odds and your odds this year of dying in a fire is 1 in 116,000. And over our lifetimes, it's 1 in 1,474. Your chance of dying in an airplane accident this year, 1 in 846,000. Over our lifetimes, it's 1 in 10,764. In those examples, we know the probabilities and can make a risk assessment as to whether we want to fly somewhere or drive or walk and whether it's worth the risk of harm by pursuing that activity. What are our odds of dying from COVID-19? We don't know. We have an estimate of the mortality of those who get COVID-19, but we don't know how many people around us have it or how many are immune. And if we don't know how widely it has spread, then we can't calculate the probability of getting it. It's an uncertainty. It's not a risk. How long will it be before we're confident enough in the face of coronavirus to get on an airplane, to go to a movie, to eat at a restaurant, to stay at a hotel, to get a haircut, go to the dentist? Not very confident until the uncertainty of the pandemic is changed into a risk to where we can estimate the probability of harm. If there isn't any way to estimate it, then it's completely uncertain. And even the models out there, the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, they have what is known as the Murray model. And they write, modeling for U.S. states based on one completed epidemic, at least for the first wave, and they're talking about China, which we don't really know if the numbers are accurate, and they continue, many incomplete epidemics, what's happening now is intrinsically challenging, highly uncertain, until there's a vaccine or a treatment that seems to work, or we know who has the virus who is immune, whether we have antibodies to protect ourselves. Risk versus uncertainty. How do we make decisions if something is uncertain versus risky? In episode 268, we discussed how to better manage risk. And I referred to the work of economist Alison Schrager. She mentioned there's three steps. Decide what we want or what we don't want. Two, is there a risk-free way or a low-risk option where we won't be harmed to be able to get what we want or to avoid what we don't want? And if there doesn't appear to be a risk-free or low-risk option, then we decide how much risk do we need to take to get what we want? What's our probability of success or the probability of personal harm or failure. We can estimate the odds and decide what is it that we want? Is there a, a low risk way of getting it? And if we have to take risk, how do we minimize that risk? A lot of knowns there. What about decision making 
under uncertainty. Hunt, in his essay, refers to something I've discussed in the past. It's called the mini-max regret approach to decision-making under uncertainty. I've used the phrase, minimize our maximum regret. That's how Ben Hunt has described it also. So in fact, that's where I got the phrase from, minimize our maximum regret. Minimax. This was developed in 1951 by Leonard Jimmy Savage, who is one of the founding fathers of behavioral economics. Hunt writes, as the name suggests, the Minimax regret strategy wants to minimize your maximum regret in any decision process. This is not at all the same thing as minimizing your maximum loss, which is what you would do if you knew the odds. Then it's a risk decision. We want to minimize our loss. We can do a decision tree, do the probabilities. But when we don't know the odds, what we're doing is minimizing our regret. He continues, the concept of regret is much more powerful and flexible concept than mere loss because it is entirely subjective. But that's exactly what makes the strategy human. That's exactly what makes the strategy real when the ultimate human chips of living and dying are on the table. Mini max regret doesn't calculate the odds and the expected utilities over multiple rolls of the dice. Mini max regret says, forget the odds. How would you feel if you rolled the dice that one time and got snake eyes? Minimizing our regret. It's a subjective behavioral coping mechanism. It isn't an optimization problem. Before we continue, let me pause here and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The other way that we make decisions under uncertainty is by telling ourselves stories, narratives. This is what I think is going to happen. This is what I'm going to do if this happens or when this happens. We do this in investing and in many other uncertain areas of our lives. David Tuckett directs the Center for the Study of Decision-Making, Uncertainty, at the University College of London. He wrote in a paper, when investors buy, sell, or hold all classes of financial assets, what they're doing is constructing narratives about their future relationships with an imagined idea. It is the narrative about a given option that makes that option compelling. We do that when we invest. We think this will happen. Hopefully this will happen. He continues, the prices of financial assets cannot be set by fundamentals, which are unknown and in future unknowable. They are set by stories about fundamentals, specifically the stories which market consensus at any one moment judges to be true. We're seeing this in the financial markets right now. We've had a huge rally in the stock market and other risk assets. Still down year to date, but there's been a meaningful recovery. What has changed? The hard numbers haven't changed, or the estimate of the economic numbers have actually gotten worse. I saw one report, the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Some of their economists estimate that the U.S. unemployment rate will exceed 32% in the second quarter. Capital Economics estimates that in the U.S., the economy will contract by 12% in the second quarter. They estimate that global real GDP for 2020 will fall by over 3%. That compares to a 3% growth rate that they estimated at the beginning of the year. A 3% contraction in the value of global output would be the worst year for the global economy since the end of the Second World War when GDP in 1945 fell 5.5%. Those are horrendous numbers. But the market is rallying because the story has changed. The story is that central banks and federal governments will support the financial markets and the economy until the shutdown can stop and the pandemic subsides. We discussed that last week on our episode on infinite money. That's all that has changed. Now, it's, it's difficult to figure out the exact narrative, but that's what I would surmise. That is what has changed. That and the fear of missing out. That we've hit bottom. It's time for everyone to get back in to the stock market because the Fed has our back. And there's even reports that the Federal Reserve could, at some point, if Congress approves, be buying stocks supporting these asset classes. Is that a true story? We don't know, but perhaps that is the consensus view right now that is driving markets. David Tuckett writes, which stories are most popular and judged true can change very much quicker than fundamentals. Asset valuations can change very rapidly indeed. A changing story is what can lead to market volatility. 
Do we know how long this pandemic will last? The economic shutdown? We don't. It is highly uncertain. That just leaves us with stories. And it leaves us with making a decision in a way to minimize our maximum regret, not based on probabilities. We can also look at historical patterns. Since 1911, according to data from Ned Davis Research, there have been 12 U.S. bear markets that occurred during a recession. The average loss in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, a U.S. benchmark, was 45.8%. Average tenure was about 300 days. The shortest of those bear markets in a recession was about 80 market days. So generally, they've lasted over a year. The shortest was a number of months. The actual bear market from the top to the bottom. If our bear market is over in less than 30 days and now we've reached bottom, markets are recovering, and will continue to do so, then that would be highly unusual. What is more typical is a bear market rally, a clearing rally. Within those 12 U.S. bear markets, there was a rally on average about 17.8% over 60 days. We've rallied over 20% in three days. But that's how bear markets go. The overall trend is down, but there are upswings in it. But again, it is highly uncertain. We do not know how long the economic shutdown will last. All we can do, and I've gotten questions about this, well, can I just stay invested? Sure. Stay invested. Should you be increasing risk because you don't like that feeling of missing out? That's certainly an option. But these are not probabilistic decisions under risk. These are decisions where there is radical uncertainty about what's going to happen, how long it will last, how much will our world have changed permanently based on what has happened. And in that environment, we look at the personal financial harm of where we stand. How much cash do we need to make it through the next year if the shutdown continued? How would we survive? Those are the decisions we need to make under uncertainty. What would our regret be based on those decisions? Now, one of the things that I love about complex environments that we live in is you have all of these pockets all around the world seeking for a solution to the problem we have. What medical treatments will work best? What vaccine will work? All this testing. There will be solutions that will minimize eventually the harm. We just don't know when that will be. And so it's difficult to make a decision assuming some time frame will be the case. I'm assuming a year or more. I certainly hope that's not the case. But in terms of the changes that we've made to our personal life to basically stay in place a year or more, hopefully it will only be a few months, but we don't know. One of my coping mechanisms is to read. And two books I, I recommend that I've been enjoying. One is a novel by Paulette Giles. to Western. It was a finalist for the National Book Award. And it's titled News of the World. The other is nonfiction. It's, it's a memoir by Fenton Johnson titled At the Center of All Beauty, Solitude and the Creative Life. Two quotes from Johnson's book 
that I really like and I think is key to surviving staying at home. One, he writes, every partner to relationship, every single parent raising children, every caregiver needs time alone, downtime in which to relocate the beat of her or his own drum. Because in that unique beat lies our particular access to the rhythms of love. Without time deliberately dedicated to solitude, partnership, parenting, and caregiving become rote. And it's a short step from rote to abuse. We need time to ourselves alone. You know, I spent a lot of time on our back patio outside. How we've coped is people spend time alone and then we come together. Everything doesn't have to be together, even though we're stuck in the house together. The other quote is about friends by Fenton Johnson. He says, it is the fact of selection, the intersection of chance and choice that renders our friends dear and the manner in which they personify the ever-changing currents of our lives. We must teach ourselves to value the flux. More than that, we must teach ourselves to value and attend to friends not as way stations between lovers or diversions from the real business of pairing up in marriage, but as relationships of consequence in their own right. We can't be with our friends in person, but we can certainly reach out to them, call them, Zoom calls, video calls, hear their voice, and see their faces. That's another way we can cope. That then is episode... 293. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly email, The Insider's Guide, to where I send the links to that week's episode, as well as an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week only goes to that email list, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education and not considered your specific risk situation of not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.